Hello, all. This is Tracy Siska, host of the Chicago Justice Show and Podcast. I would like to thank you for subscribing. I'm also here to let you know that moving forward, the podcast is going to be featuring exclusive, extended versions of all our interviews that we do for our show, but are not available on any other platform. Today, we feature one such interview with Rachel Levinson-Waldman, who is Deputy Director of the National Security and Civil Liberties Program at the Brennan Center for Justice. We discuss local police department surveillance of social media and the sophisticated platforms used by the departments to connect their data to various other data sources, including social media posts. Also, please remember that the Chicago Justice Show streams three times a week on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and Twitch. Please follow us on those platforms to access content that is strictly distributed through the show. Now on to our interview. Welcome everyone to the Chicago Justice Show. I am so happy today to welcome Rachel Levinson Walden, who is the Deputy Director of the Liberty and National Security Program at the Brennan Center for Justice. And I'm gonna give you a little, little uh, spiel about the Brennan Center for Justice. It's an independent nonpartisan law and policy organization that works to reform, revitalize, and when necessary, defend our country's systems of democracy and justice. God, that place must be busy. I live a, a mile from the insurrection. I can't imagine how busy they've gotta be. Rachel, th thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So what do you, what is your work uh, involved when you're, besides just liberty and national security, can you give us a little more detail? Sure, so I've been at the Brennan Center for almost 10 years now. Um, and when the Liberty and National Security Program was originally started up, the Brennan Center overall is about 25 years old. We were originally focusing on basically post 9-11 civil liberties issues. So privacy, secrecy, surveillance, domestic intelligence gathering, homophobia, kind of the range of civil liberties and civil rights issues that arose post 9-11. Um, so, for instance, when I first came to the Brennan Center, I offered a report on basically what happens with all of the data. So after 9-11, um, the federal government especially was given a lot of new authorities to collect information about Americans that wasn't necessarily related to criminal activity. What happens with that, right? Where is it kept? For how long? Whom is it shared with? For what purposes? Things like that. So we're looking at that. Um, I have colleagues who focus a lot on um, overclassification and the consequences for government transparency, um, a lot of work around countering violent extremism, um, these programs run by DHS and Department of Justice, and kind of uh, what, they, what they have meant, the very shaky foundation that they're, that they're built on. I would say in the last probably six or seven years, we've kind of expanded our purview to include not just narrowly national security per se, but also issues around policing and technology and civil liberties and civil rights. And that was coming out of a few things, partly seeing that a lot of the technologies that we were seeing in the hands of law enforcement, some of those come out of the national security sphere, things like um, stingrays, these devices that can look like a cell phone, right? These are sort of coming from our uh, kind of war footing abroad and coming domestically. Often the funding for these technologies is justified um, kind of through a national security lens, right? So, you know, either on the federal level or the local level, okay, law enforcement needs these technologies for counterterrorism purposes. They are mostly then used in the war on drugs, but that helps provide the funding for them. And the issues, the privacy issues, the constitutional issues, the Fourth and First Amendment issues that we were seeing in the national security sphere 
all of those are playing out in very similar ways, kind of when these technologies and these enhanced powers are in the hands of police. So, you know, we look at use of um, cell phone um, trackers, license plate readers, surveillance cameras, drones, social media, predictive policing programs, um, kind of a wide range of topics also in the policing and tech sphere. Yeah, it's really scary. And I've tried to, when I taught at a couple of universities, I've tried to tell my students and try to ingrain in them, like everything that you think should be authorized for the military or intelligence, and it's only going to get used overseas. America's history is replete with function creep problems, which means it never stays there. I know when the CPD got, um, when they were considering assault rifles to give the police officers assault rifles, I started looking into it while well, the makers of the M4, while well, they were losing their government contracts because it was an unreliable weapon and the government wanted other rifles made. So they were dumping it to police departments and they opened up a, hey, we can sell the local police departments and that's how they got Chicago in it. And then, you know, the superintendent said it would only be under certain circumstances. We're like, okay, then pile up all the M4s for each, uh, to each sergeant, give him an SUV, have his truck, have the M4s in it. And when we need them, he can take them out and he can be responsible for their use. So when they're misused, he's fired or give it to a lieutenant. Why does it have to be on the street with every officer? And they, they had no real good answer. And then of course, they're used all the time for crowd control. I mean, there's massive issues. They're used all the time. Right. And the bad, this is how bad Chicago is about things in the general order to authorize the use of the M4 near the page four or five at the end was a line that said supervisors could not regulate who had, who carried the gun as long as the officer did the qualification. So the bosses had no role and it's, wow, there's function creep right there, right there by all by itself. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, and I'm, the Brennan Center slash you submitted uh, open records requests or what we call in Chicago FOIA requests to a variety of cities um, early in 2020 around their social media monitoring. What was going on with that? What, what, was, the, what was the motivation to do that? Yeah, so exactly. So as you say, we submitted um, in early 2020, in January of 2020, we submitted these public records requests to four police departments. We have since submitted a fifth. So we have we have five that are outstanding in some way. One of them has, has kind of been closed. The rest are, are basically still in process and in various levels. So originally we submitted requests to the Baltimore Police Department, the Boston Police Department, the NYPD, New York Police Department, and the LAPD, the LA Police Department. And then more recently, we submitted a request to the DC Police Department, the Metropolitan Police, together with data for Black Lives. So that was sort of a, a co-request. And the reason that we submitted these was that we had increasingly been seeing um, a lot of, you know, kind of narrative accounts, a lot of media coverage of use of social media by law enforcement. Um, we were doing a lot of writing on it and a lot of research on it. And although, you know, it's always hard to get sort of a, a real concrete picture of how widespread the use of social media is, it basically seemed to be sort of, you know, based on these anecdotal accounts and also based on things like um, about five years ago, we did research on expenditures by police departments on social media monitoring tools, like third-party tools. Um, for a variety of reasons, those were then kind of less in use for a while, though it appears that their use is picking back up. 
Um, but at that point, we found over 150 departments that had spent at least $10,000 a year on these tools. Um, the International Association of Chiefs of Police and the Urban Institute used to do a survey every year. They haven't published one since 2017, but they did a survey going out to police departments around the country, asking them about their use of social media. So the most recent survey, over 500 police departments responded, and the vast majority of those were using social media in some way, um, and especially probably two-thirds to three-quarters were using social media not just to do outward-facing communication, so not just hey, we're looking for this person, or hey, we're you know, hosting a block party or something like that, but using it for investigations, for intelligence, for situational awareness. So even though we couldn't always get an exact picture, and even though very few departments had publicly available policies that really spelled out their use of social media, it seemed that it was pretty widespread. So we had taken a look at, at the news to see where was it being reported that that kind of major police department seemed to be using social media, where at the same time, there wasn't a lot known about really like the contours and scope of that use. And so that was how we picked the police departments that we focused on. So for Baltimore, there had been coverage, um, especially around, uh, you know, Freddie Gray, um, his death and, and the protests around their use of a tool called Geophedia. In Boston, there had been coverage about their use of social media, including a very powerful report that the ACLU of Massachusetts put out coming out of a public records request they had done, showing that the Boston Police Department, together with the BRIC, the Boston Regional Intelligence Center, which is their local fusion center, had used social media to track Black Lives Matter protesters, Muslim Lives Matter protesters. And then for NYPD, there had been coverage about their use of social media and the same in LA. So we felt like there were sort of these seeds of information out there about this use, but not actually a lot of granular detail about what it looked like and especially what it looked like now. And so thinking not just about their use of third party social media monitoring tools, but just what policies do they have in place? Do they have any policies in place? Kind of how are officers being guided in their use of social media? What are rules around use of undercover accounts? Can social media be used for sort of broad-based situational awareness or just for criminal investigations? Kind of all of these issues where we felt like there was a lot more to know. And then similarly with our request to DC, there had been some coverage about their use several years ago of social media monitoring software. Um, and we wanted to know more about what that looked like. Okay, so we're going to dive deep. Um, I got on this subject from an article from The Guardian related to what LAPD has done. And it is some scary, scary stuff. Um, and I, I tried to tell my students back in the day, I'm like, you think the simplest little piece of information of you, they can't tell anything about you, right? But when it's put together, wow, does the picture come together? Okay, so first question on this subject the LAPD social media monitoring guide. Can you talk a little about it? And also, it seems that, unless I misinterpreted it here, it allows any officer in the department to do social media monitoring on their own. Is, is, am I right about that? Yes, yeah, so this is one of the things that was really striking about the policies that we got from LA. And I should say, when we first filed this request, the LAPD produced three policies, at least two of which were already publicly available, and then closed the request. 
and said, basically, there's you know nothing more that we have to produce. So we then filed suit working together with pro bono counsel at Davis Wright Tremaine. And ultimately, they have now produced 10,000 plus pages of documents. Um, so a lot of those have been reported on, especially in this Guardian piece. And then there's more that's that's going to be coming out. Okay, if um, I can if I can interrupt you real quick, sure. because this nothing makes me matter because I, we file in court. Wait a minute. They gave you two public ones and said we don't have any more, and then suddenly produced when you go to sue ten thousand plus pages. Um, so I can say it. You may not. Yep. Are they just really, really dumb? Or is this a purposeful act, in your opinion, to cover up something? Because this always drives me nuts. They have lawyers that are representing them and writing these responses. One would think they're doing it with eyes open about everything. You know, it's a good question. I don't know. Um, we've had more experience, for instance, with the NYPD. We went through a multi-year litigation against the NYPD for documents about their predictive policing programs and, and like trials that they had run of predictive policing. Um, and, you know, we're now engaged in this FOIA request against them for documents about social media monitoring with, you know, I think it's always hard to know. I think the answer might be some combination of overworked FOIA office, not wanting to hand stuff over, hoping they can produce a few things and it'll just go away. You know, certainly, certainly our experience with NYPD and with a lot of other departments is that they just don't produce, they kind of wait for the lawsuit. And obviously we're fortunate in that, you know, we are a well-resourced organization which in part means that we've been able to bring on pro bono counsel and we have had really generous and really dedicated pro bono counsel in a number of these matters. So we worked with Davis Wright Tremaine on this, we've worked with Quinn Emanuel, we've worked with other law firms with Evershed Sutherland who have really put a lot of time and effort and money into making this happen, right? And in theory, these are things that, you know, any, citizen, any resident should be able to do, right? You should be able to get these documents from your government that, that they're obligated to produce. But in fact, usually what it takes, as you well know, you've had this experience, really is the time and effort to go through litigation. And then in some ways, it really is astonishing when, okay, it turns out there's thousands of pages. I will say we have had actually a good experience working with the LAPD's counsel's office. They have actually been forthcoming and engaging and helpful. Um, but obviously the LAPD originally, or the public records office of the LAPD originally thought, all right, you know, we'll look for a few policies and call it a day. Okay. So I interrupted you when you were going in it because I'm so frustrated by that reality. Like there's no punishment, really? right? There's no accountability yeah. for them. Um, lying when we did the FOIA in Illinois back in 2010, it went into effect. They were originally going to have a fine of a thousand dollars, and I to the public body if they got right. And I said the Chicago, you know, the police department is 1.7, 1.9 billion. I think at that point they don't care about a thousand dollars. And I'm like, you got to make it fifty or hundred thousand dollars if they're just out if they're caught outright lying. And I got it up to five thousand. So. I guess that was something, but you know, one point if you're 1.7 billion, which is the budget now, five thousand is not so much. 
So well, and the other thing, just to, to add on to this, right, even separate from sort of whether there's a, you know, a penalty that's assessed, they're then paying out attorney's fees, right? And I just keep thinking the idea that taxpayers' funds are being spent to pay for the litigation to produce documents that should have been produced in the first place. There is no way that FOIA officers' time, if they had spent the time doing these searches in the first place, would have cost as much as now spending that time all over again, getting counsel involved and having to shell out not insignificant attorney's fees that still usually by no means cover the actual amount that's spent kind of on the you know civil society or on the requester side to litigate these. But it's also kind of enraging at, you know, I'm not a taxpayer in LA, but I'm a taxpayer in DC and, you know, we're, we haven't sued yet, but we're sort of, you know, going through this process with the, with the MPD, with the Metropolitan Police Department. And it's really aggravating, right? That kind of all over the country, money is being spent that could be spent so much better elsewhere to really like clean up from these original, these initial failures to, to respond appropriately to requests. So let's get back. I interrupted you a few minutes ago um, and you were about, you got 10,000 pages. What was in those 10,000 pages about the LA, the LA's guide and their social media policies? Yes. So, so there was a lot, right? So I think originally you've been asking about the social media policy and if it was really true that there sort of weren't very many limitations. And this was really interesting. I think one of the things that struck us about the LAPD's social media policies is that they, they do actually have quite a few policies that address social media in some way, really starting in about 2012 and going forward. There are at least probably four to six policies that kind of speak to the use of social media in some way. And then there are various directives that have come out, um, which isn't necessarily what we see with other police departments, right? In a lot of departments, there's there's nothing, at least that's publicly available. There, there might be more the department has, or there's a policy, but it's really just sort of saying, you know, public media or social media is useful for all these purposes and, and sort of that's it. So there's more that the LAPD has, but really when you dig into it and look for, okay, what are the actual limitations? What are the guardrails being built around this? What are kind of the supervisory approval processes? Uh, there's not a lot. Basically, officers are being, I would say, not just allowed, but really encouraged to use social media pretty broadly. And starting from 2012 on, you sort of see all of these different um, justifications, sort of these different purposes that social media would be used for, right? So for criminal investigations, for listening, for situational awareness, for intelligence, lots of kind of rationales for using social media and not much in the way really of concrete restrictions um, in terms of how officers could, could turn to social media. Okay, so let's talk about some of the technologies that are out there and I think LA uses. Um, I wanna read you a little bit of a quote. It's a little bit of a long one from some of the stuff published on uh, the Brennan Center's website, but I think it's really interesting and it's about Palantir, if I'm pronouncing that right. Palantir, yep. Uh, yep. Which allows an officer that identifies a person of interest in a criminal investigation, and who knows what criminal person of interest means. Uh, Palantir can be used to obtain a map of their movements and personal relationships, taking 
checking DMV records, license plate reader data, employment data, arrest records, field interview data, card data, which we'll get to why that's important and what really drew me to talking to you because some of the stuff they collect on there just blew me away. Um, when an officer seeks information about a particular location, the system can be can use a similar process for identifying those that are routinely in the area by virtue of their work, residence, or documented encounters with police. Hello. Um, that seems like the whole shebang. Like, what is left out of there besides my blood type? Yeah, Palantir is a really, really powerful system, it appears. You know, the way Palantir always describes itself is that it is not, it, it sort of, it, it tries to kind of frame itself as just this like service operating in the background, right? So they will say, we don't collect data. We're not choosing what data gets fed into a system. We are simply acting as kind of an aggregation and analytical platform for what any given government agency is doing, right? So whether at the you know, local, state, or federal level. Um, but it does seem that the capacity that it brings to that data is really kind of a force multiplier in terms of being able to ingest it, to turn it all into searchable data, right? So it talks, you know, Palantir will, will talk about um, how it can bring in a lot of like unstructured data, right? So not just, okay, we already have these existing databases or data sheets with like neatly organized information, but it can bring in lots of different data in different forms, different structures or not structured at all, and basically make sense of it. Right? So you can see how this would be very appealing to a law enforcement agency, to an intelligence agency, um, but what it does really is, is put incredible powers at the fingertips of law enforcement. And I think it's especially, you know, I think for anyone who sort of works in the field of, you know, privacy, secrecy, surveillance, transparency, just generally often the way that I describe our work is sort of ensuring that the balance of power between the people and the government is an appropriate one, right? That the government is getting certainly the information that it needs from the people, but not too much, and that the people are getting the information that they need about how the government is, is functioning, right? And so I think one of the things that, that Palantir does, and really that a lot of surveillance technologies do, is like supercharge the information collection and analysis and the ability to put it together to basically build really detailed dossiers on people. And that could mean finding out just about everything about you know where somebody's been, what kind of car they drive, where they live, where they have lived, who they're connected to, all these things. Or it could also mean in other circumstances, and this is one of the concerns that we've raised, especially about social media, it could also mean drawing conclusions about them that end up being inaccurate, but kind of look accurate because of the wealth of data. And and you know, I was saying this is sort of always to some extent a, a concern when you're talking about, I think, law enforcement agencies, but especially, to be honest, when it comes to the LAPD and, and some other police departments like it, there have been, right, kind of regular repeated scandals about the LAPD's exercise of power, about their uh, failure to reveal information, even just recently, and I know we're going to get to field interview cards, 
their misuse of these cards, misuse of gang-related information. They were actually kicked out of CalGangs, the California gang database, because they were feeding in falsified information. And so the uh, attorney general did kind of an audit and report um, and said the LAPD literally shouldn't be using this database anymore. So they are no longer allowed access to that database and they can no longer feed information into it, but they still have access to this Palantir database, which at least gives them a lot of the same tools, even if it's not this kind of statewide data system. Well, I never heard they were kicked out of the statewide data system. That is amazing. So yes, I want to get to um, what I would refer to as stop and frisk cards. Um, so the cards that the police department, the LA police department fills out when they stop someone, I'm assuming on the street, or is this in every interaction or is it just a street stop? So I think it's primarily street stops, but I will be honest that it is not totally clear. There, there is sort of conflicting information about when these would be filled out. So there are there's some language suggesting that field interview cards wouldn't be filled out basically unless there's at least some kind of like reasonable suspicion of a crime. I don't think it would necessarily be probable cause. At that point, you're getting to a warrant standard. But on the flip side, these can be filled out on just about anyone, right? It could be somebody being stopped on the street who is believed to be a suspect, somebody who's thought to be a victim, a witness. And then you have, um, I believe it was the superintendent of police who said in, in an article maybe a year or two ago about the field interview cards, they can be filled out on anyone and everyone. Um, and it certainly seems like that is closer to the guidance that officers were getting that basically anyone they were stopping to talk to on the street for just about any reason, um, it could be appropriate and even desirable to fill out one of these field interview cards. Okay, so I'm a, I guess I, I'll start this way. When they stop these people, are, 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 before we get to what information they're actually collecting, which is outrageous, how mandated are the people to give them this information? Now I bring this up because there's two types of mandates. There's one where the law actually says they must provide it. And there's one that says there's usually a big guy, if we just use men here, a big person with a gun and a badge and a club and that approaches me and is telling me to do things and give them information. So how hard mandated it is by law that they give this, this whatever types of information the officer is asking and how soft mandated do we think it is just by reality of a guy, a person coming with a gun and asking you a question? Yeah, I mean, I think those are exactly the right questions to ask and sort of the right scenarios to raise. So on the question of literally, like, do you have a legal obligation to provide this information? The answer is no, right? You know, if a police officer comes up to you on the street and says like, hey, can you stop and talk to me for a sec? And, you know, either, hey, I think you might know something about this crime. Could we talk about it? Or, hey, you know, I, you know, I see that you're involved in community work. I'd love to be able to reach out to you again. Can you give me your phone number and your, you know, Instagram handle? You can walk away, right? You don't have to provide any of that information um, unless you are in custody. And once you're in custody, also, you can, you know, you could invoke your right to a lawyer, although I think there's probably you know, some basic obligation to provide identifying information 
Um, although I don't know the exact contours of that, but certainly if you are just standing on the street, right? There's been no arrest. There's not a suggestion of arrest. You don't have to provide any information to a police officer. That being said, I think the, the question that you ask about, okay, even if it's not a hard mandate, kind of does it feel obligatory? And I think the answer to that is to some extent, yes, or at least in many circumstances, it's going to be yes, right? Whether it's the simple matter that somebody in a uniform, potentially body armor, with in this country, probably a gun, a taser, handcuffs, right? Maybe a couple of other kind of pieces of equipment on them are coming up and saying like, hey buddy, can you stop for a second and give me this information? It's a little intimidating to say no. And that could be coupled with the officer saying like, hey, you know, I just saw you like rolled through that stop sign right before you parked or hey, I just saw you, you know, jaywalk or look, you know, I know that this thing's happening, but you know, I don't want to take you down to the station. I don't even want to write you a ticket, but look, can you just stop and talk to me for a second? I just want to fill out this card, right? That can feel pretty, can feel pretty persuasive in a way that it's easier to take a minute to give the information for the card than to kind of deal with the suggestion of what the consequences might be of not giving that information. Yeah, I, I think people who think, oh, I'll just easily say no, have not been in that situation. And when you're a person of color and have seen police do all kinds of things in your community, um, and you're not in a populated area, and it may be dark, it gets, it certainly gets more real very quickly. Um, Absolutely, the stakes are really high, right? To, to, to seem kind of uncooperative in any way, right? It's not just a matter of awkwardness or inconvenience. It really could be a matter basically of life or death. Right, and I have said to people in Chicago for years who do a lot of know your rights trainings, mm -hmm. and I love them, but I'm like, I think you should also include there, you gotta read the situation because is it better to give them the situation or get beat up and arrested and then have to give it to them anyways? And I'm not justifying that like by any stretch, but there's a difference when I walk down the street and a cop comes up to me in what I say, invoking my rights and what someone young kid of color says in a very underserved community at night says to a cop, no, I, I wanna talk to a lawyer. I'm not I'm refusing to answer your questions. Should they absolutely have the same rights and the same response? A hundred percent. And that's what I'm fighting for. I just don't think that exists on the street. And I think yeah. it's dangerous to, to just not acknowledge that. Okay. Yeah. Um, so on this card that the LAPD has, I call it the stop and frisk card. I'm sure Rachel's going to tell us the real name of it. It has, it asks for your social media handles. It asks for, I believe your phone number and an email address. What the hell is going on with that? And that's all just for surveillance. Am I wrong? So you were asking about kind of the, like the scope of information that's being asked for on the field interview card. And basically is this for surveillance? So as you say, right, they're asking for a pretty wide variety of information. So things like name, address, telephone number, social media handles, um, you know, weight, eye color, associates, unusual information, right? A pretty wide variety of things. Um, 
the LAPD says they kind of put out a statement or a press release after this article in The Guardian came out, pretty much saying, we asked for this information because we want to be able to follow up with people about, you know, crimes that we're investigating um, or, you know, issues that we think that people might have some input on. And there are people who, you know, are really primarily operating on social media. Maybe they don't have an email address or they don't have a reliable phone number. So this is our way to follow up with them, which may be in part true, but I think is extremely incomplete and honestly just sort of disingenuous and misleading. Because again, going back to these policies that the LAPD has starting in 2012 and going forward, it's very explicit that social media is serving a number of purposes, right? And it's not just oh, we use social media as a convenient way to contact people when they say, oh gosh, it's hard to find me other ways. Let me give you my you know, Facebook information so you can message me on Facebook, right? They talk about using it for investigations, for intelligence, for listening, for situational awareness, right? It is so much broader than just the, we'd like to be able to get in touch with people. And so I think describing it as surveillance and really kind of even broader, and it's also where, a database like Palantir comes back in, right? If you can kind of dump all this information in, social media is so powerful in terms of partly helping to confirm like, okay, this person that you're looking for over here is the same person as this person with the same name or a similar name. Look, we can, you know, social media is one way that we can use to kind of connect those persona, whether it's based on names, pictures, things like that. And you can also build out so much associational information. And that's another thing that we sort of see and, and hear about in terms of what's reported is that sometimes people are even being asked for their social media information, not necessarily because, or not just because there is an interest in following up with that person and tracking them and monitoring them, but because the real interest or one of the main interests is in who they're connected with. Right. So if you think like, OK, I'm trying to figure out who knows some network, whether it is legitimately a network of people that are engaged in criminal activity or an officer or detective or division or department has decided we think there's a gang, we think there's a criminal conspiracy of some kind. Right. But maybe we can't get to these people, but we can find them if we have the social media information for some of the people they're connected to. And maybe say they don't have you know strict privacy settings. Once we know who they are and can see who's posting and who they're connected with, right? Then we can kind of build out this whole network. Right, and that's where the the fake accounts come in because then you friend someone that's friends with them, um, and that's how you get to be friends with those people in their network. And that's where the fake accounts come from. Um, yeah, I mean it's astonishing. I, I guess we should have expected this eventuality right this this had to be coming down the road with how technologically advanced we are and how social media is in everything we should have fed all of this um we should have expected all of this it's really it's very scary so here's my last question if you're going to pick i know you've written about reforms that are needed if you're going to pick your number one reform that needs to happen what is that reform So I'm probably going to cheat a little bit and like bind a few things into one reform, right? Because we, you know, we've talked about, you know, transparency. We've talked about 
having a warrant requirement to use undercover accounts. I think the one of the biggest threats, oh, there's so, there's so much to do. There's so much to clean up in this realm is, to, but at a basic level to have really, really tight standards on law enforcement use of social media, right? And that is in various realms, right? Mm. It's for criminal investigations. It's, you know, for any kind of monitoring, which I think is basically inappropriate, having very robust well-articulated standards that by and large limit the use of social media, um, except in circumstances where there really is like an articulated uh, connection to a predicated investigation and consequences for violating those rules, right? And that is the other really important part um, because otherwise, you know, there's, there's kind of no there there. And that really has to come from the top down, right? It's the policies but it's also the culture at any given department to say, we actually take this seriously and we take it seriously because we respect the rights of the people. And also because that's the best way to do investigations is to only use information that is reliable and that is tightly tethered and not just sort of be trawling around on social media. I agree with you hundred percent. I fear for that in Chicago, our, uh, our superintendent said yesterday or the day before in a long city council hearing, charge everyone, let the courts figure it out. So I don't see that reform coming to Chicago anytime soon. Although I think in a lot of cities, this is the mantra you would get if you got inside, that's what you would hear. Um, fascinating and scary, scary stuff. Rachel Levinson-Waldman, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed this.